0: I'd like to thank Ladder Life Insurance for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. To lock in your best rate today and get your family covered with Ladder, go to ladderlife.com gold. We did have a relatively quiet day in the overall markets today. With the exception of the pot stocks, they were on fire today, in part because of the Reddit Raiders now putting their attention on the cannabis industry. Also, of course, there are some fundamentals to support this trade. Number one, these stocks really got smoked last year. They got beat up. So a lot of these stocks, I think, represented pretty good speculative value. But also you've got the prospects of a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president finally legalizing marijuana at the national level, which would be a huge benefit for this industry, because they've really been struggling with the fact that it is illegal, complicates banking and all sorts of businesses related to cannabis. So clearly that would be a big positive for the industry. Now, of course, I don't recommend, you know, when people buy stocks, just rushing into the market and just buying. I mean, if you look at some of these stocks, Tilray, for example, I think was the biggest gainer on the day. It was up about 50 percent in normal trading. And then in the after hours, I saw it spike up like, Another 30%, so 80% on the day. So, some crazy trading in these stocks. So, you know, again, I think people are rushing in and overpaying for some of these ideas, but at least there's some fundamentals to thinking that there may be some value in this space a lot better than buying those uh, heavily shorted stocks that were way overpriced. Now, of course, the cannabis stocks are, are are quite risky. And I think anytime you have a herd rushing in to buy the same thing at the same time, is probably dangerous. So maybe when the dust settles, there'll be some better uh, buying opportunities in this sector. But obviously, it's a very, very speculative area of the stock market. A lot of people got burned on these stocks uh, when they crashed last time. But obviously within the refuge there, there's obviously some opportunities if you understand uh, where they are gold and silver prices were pretty calm today gold was up a little bit silver down a little but the action was in the platinum market the price of platinum up better than five percent on the day that's the other precious metal doesn't get as much uh, coverage as gold and silver so maybe this could be the start of something bigger the fact that we're seeing this action in platinum maybe that bodes well for the precious metal sector in general uh Oil continues to move higher. Oil prices made a new high post-COVID. We almost got up to $59 a barrel before pulling back. I think we settled around unchanged. The high was $58.90. There was a lot more action, though, in Bitcoin and some of these Bitcoin-related stocks. Bitcoin today, I think, was down about 10% from its high. It got up last night to over 48000 per Bitcoin. And the low that I saw earlier this afternoon was 43,800 ish. So it's a little bit over a 10% drop from yesterday's record high, but it's still holding above the high that we had pre Tesla's announcement that it had bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. So we'll see if Bitcoin can still hold above those old highs or if it's going to fall back in to that range, which would certainly signal some more short term downside in Bitcoin. I thought it was interesting that earlier this morning when Bitcoin was down about 3%, you had a lot of people on CNBC reporting it like it was big news. Why is Bitcoin down 3%? 3% is nothing. I mean, they, it could do that at any given 10-minute window. I don't even know why they bothered to pay any attention to it. But where there was a bigger move was in MicroStrategy stock, which is really just a proxy now for Bitcoin. It had another big move up yesterday, but today it was down by about 22%. In fact, yesterday... Micro strategy gapped way up, and today it gapped way down. So it did kind of leave what looks like an island top in the chart, and that potentially is a significant reversal pattern. So we'll see what happens because if there's a top in micro strategy, it probably means that there's a top in Bitcoin. Now, I don't know. Obviously, this bull market has surprised me uh, based on how big it's gotten. Uh, So, you know. Could it get bigger? Sure, but you always have to look for signs that the that the, the peak has been hit. And we'll see what happens with MicroStrategy if it continues to move down and confirms that island top pattern. And in fact, look what happened to shares of Tesla today. Tesla was down 5.5%. That is a big move for that stock. I mean, the NASDAQ overall, if you look at that index, it was basically flat. It was barely down. Uh, The Dow was up a little, S&P down a little. So there wasn't a lot of movement in the overall market, but there was a big movement in Tesla. No news other than the fact that Bitcoin went down. And in fact, it was down yesterday. So shares of Tesla have now dropped by about 7%. Since announcing that it put $1.5 billion into Bitcoin and left the door open to buying more, right? So we have no idea if you're a Tesla shareholder, you have no idea how much money is going to go into this crypto portfolio. And as I said on my last podcast, that may not sit well with a lot of the Tesla investors who may not necessarily be bullish on Bitcoin and may not like this distraction. They may not like this tangent that the company is now uh, pursuing and the stock is already expensive. It's already priced for perfection. So maybe they don't want to take the risk of something going wrong with Bitcoin. And I think what really could be a problem for Tesla is what if Bitcoin really starts to fall? What are they going to do? Right. Let's say Bitcoin prices drop back down below 30,000, 25,000, something like that. Tesla obviously bought Bitcoin 35,000, something like that. I don't know the exact price, but that's about where they're in. Now, if it goes down, are they going to feel compelled to buy more? to try to support the price of what they already own, which could mean it's an open-ended pit if Tesla becomes a big buyer of Bitcoin. After all, the Grayscale Trust isn't gonna be buying a lot of Bitcoin anymore. The premium is gone. I mean, it closed today at a 2% premium. So you're not gonna get all this demand from Grayscale. So if Tesla has already bought a big chunk of Bitcoin, I mean, unless you have a lot of other corporations rushing to copy uh, Elon Musk. But if Tesla's stock is going down, I mean, so far, there isn't um, a, a positive reaction in the marketplace to the news that Tesla owns Bitcoin, because after all, Tesla's bought Bitcoin and the stock is down 7 percent. So that doesn't exactly scream, hey, buy Bitcoin, if you're the CEO of another company, maybe you wanna sit back and wait and see what happens to Tesla before you stick your toe in the water. Yes, it worked out well for MicroStrategy, but that may be a one-off wonder, right? It may not happen again, and we'll see what happens to MicroStrategy stock in the future. But if we're not gonna get this big influx of new corporate money into Bitcoin, where's the buying gonna come from? Now you have all this downward pressure Again, if Tesla is going to feel compelled to kind of double down on its investment to flush good money after bad in an effort to try to prop up the price of Bitcoin as it's selling off, well, then who knows how big its commitment may be. And that could be very scary for the current shareholder base. I mean, yes, maybe there are some new shareholders that wanna buy Tesla because they like Bitcoin and they wanna buy any company that's now associated with it, but this is a huge company as far as market cap. There is big, big money here. And my guess is that the percentage of Tesla investors who don't want to invest in Bitcoin uh, probably far exceeds the ones uh, who do want to. And so I think there could be a lot more pressure from the people who don't want Bitcoin exposure to sell their Tesla shares than the people who do want it to buy Tesla as a proxy. And look, if you were looking for a reason to get rid of Tesla, here's one. I mean, it's very overvalued. Remember, a lot of shorts were in this stock at much, much lower prices. This was one of the heavily shorted stocks. All the shorts are gone. They may smell blood here. They may think, aha, this is a good opportunity to start you know, re-upping those to start putting those shorts back on now that Tesla is also into Bitcoin, especially if the price of Bitcoin starts coming down. But it was actually a little bit of a surprise to me that we didn't get more of a reaction in these markets, either in the precious metals market. And I'm talking gold and silver, not platinum in the foreign exchange market. I mean, the dollar was a little lower, but not much. Uh, or in the stock market to the extremely dovish comments made today by Fed Chair Jerome Powell. I mean, very, very dovish, among the most dovish comments I've ever heard. And I know I've said that before, except every time Powell speaks, he exceeds his prior level of dovishness. So he's getting more and more dovish as time goes by now maybe the markets are kind of immune to it at this point but to me there are some very important warnings or or tells that are evident and the markets really should be trading more especially the foreign exchange market and the gold market and silver market I mean the dollar should be getting hammered and gold and silver should really be going up based on these comments now the stock market I mean yes the stock market is going to get a lot more money printing and a lot more inflation but you know the fact that it's not reacting may just show that the bubble is too big and some air is going to come out of it but that's not the case with precious metals these markets should be moving on what the Fed is saying which lends me to believe that a lot of people still don't understand the significance of what Powell is saying and what he is basically revealing in his comments and the the most revealing comments come in the Q&A right he gave this talk today in front of the economic club of new york and he basically you know reads a prepared speech but then he gets Q&A right and so that's you know kind of off the cuff where he's speaking more candidly because he you know he's not reading from his notes he's having to answer an actual question so that's where Powell is more likely to reveal his true self when he's not reading a carefully drafted speech, which I'm sure he doesn't write himself. He has people helping him and then they go over it and they make sure that they don't reveal more than they really want to tell. But when he's speaking off the cuff, which is what happens in a Q&A, that can happen. So I want to talk in this podcast about some of the things that I think the market should have learned from what Powell said in the Q&A. So one of the things, again, had to do with inflation. And there were more questions about inflation probably than I've heard in other uh, Q&As, which makes sense because people should be worried about inflation. I mean, look at A, all the money that's been printed, but B, look at what's happening to prices. Look at energy prices. Look at metal prices. Look at raw material prices prices are going up for everything. Prices are going up uh, for shipping rates. In fact, I read a story today that the port of Long Beach just reported its busiest January ever in history. Imports coming into the port surged by 17.5% year over year. That is a massive increase uh, versus January of of last year. Remember January of last year was pre-COVID, so, right? So it wasn't like there was a big COVID decline. So this is a huge increase. Exports, yeah, they were up too, but only 7% increase in exports, so a huge gain in the deficit. And in fact, the number of containers that were shipped back to Asia empty increased by almost 35% year over year. Right? That means an entire container full of goods is arriving in the United States and then we've got nothing to put into it. And so it goes back to Asia empty. Think how inefficient that is. We should be loading up those containers with our own exports, except we don't manufacture the stuff to put in there. The only thing we're exporting is the money we're printing, US dollars, and you don't need a container to ship those. We just send them electronically uh, over to the Asian companies that made all the stuff that we're buying. And you know what happens sometimes Is it becomes so expensive to bring those empty containers back that what happens sometimes is they leave the containers in Long Beach and they start stacking up like little cities and they just, you know, have a brand new one. They make a brand new one rather than paying the cost of bringing it back empty. But this is showing you a surge in spending on imports. And all those prices are gonna go up. The cost of transporting them is going up. And in fact, I was listening to all these stories today about chip shortages. You know, semiconductor chips, they're, they're not there. And so it's, it's holding up uh, the cell phones, it's holding up the automobiles. I mean, there's so much computer now in an automobile. There's so much technology in a car these days. They're almost like uh, mobile computers. There's so much tech, but they need these chips. And they're not there. There's a big shortage. And so obviously prices are going up. Inventories are being strained. I mean, there is signs of exploding prices everywhere. So it makes sense to me that a lot of people are asking Powell about inflation and you know if the Fed's concerned or what they're gonna do. And of course, what Powell's response was, was that, well, we're not concerned at all. We're not worried. We don't see any signs of inflation. You know, So, I mean, to me, to ignore all of these signs and not say, well, yes, yeah, it is a bit concerning. We are maybe seeing signs of a maybe a bigger pickup of inflation than we're comfortable with, right? He can't say that because the markets would be scared that he might raise rates. So what Powell is doing is throwing cold water on the idea that the Fed might do something, to respond to an inflation threat because if the Fed claims that there is no inflation threat well then you don't have to worry about the Fed doing anything about it which is what I think is the important tell from the conversation is that the Fed doesn't care because clearly it should be worried about inflation the fact that it's not shows you that it's more worried about having to fight inflation than inflation itself because it's not going to fight inflation because it can't and in fact. One of the people that asked a question relating to the deficit and the size of the deficit, the question was, we have record amounts of debt. The budget deficits are record highs, the total national debt is a record high, but the interest cost of servicing the debt is not at a record high only because rates are so low. But the person asking the question says, are you concerned about what might happen if interest rates were to rise, right? If inflation did pick up more and if the Fed was uh, then forced or thinking about raising rates to try to contain inflation, would the Fed consider the impact that might have on the federal budget? Meaning that, hey, if we raise interest rates a lot to fight inflation, that's going to cause the federal government to have to spend a lot more money servicing its debt and maybe it can't afford to do that. So, the question was Would that be a consideration that might cause the Fed not to raise rates when rate hikes are appropriate? Because obviously the federal government can't afford to pay. And Powell immediately, and of course I think he felt he had to do this, said, Absolutely not. We will never take into consideration the federal budget in our rate decisions. Meaning that, look, we don't care how much it causes the deficit to skyrocket, we're going to raise rates even if the federal government is not in a position to pay the higher rates, which I don't believe. I don't believe that for a minute because that's the very reason that the Fed has to pretend that there's no inflation because they can't raise rates because they know that the U.S. government can't pay the higher bills.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: But I think Powell was afraid of being honest about saying, yeah, you're right, we are going to take into consideration the fiscal box that the U.S. government is in, Uh, we're not going to allow interest rates to rise because of the enormity of the debt, because we know we would put the government in, in a fiscal box where it wouldn't be able to service the debt, and then it would either have to have massive cuts in government spending big tax increases or default on the debt. And we at the Fed, you know, we're working in cooperation with the U.S. government and the Treasury. We would never want to put them in that position. See, Powell can't say that because if he actually admitted that the Fed was on hold indefinitely, that the Fed was actually in this box, that it can't fight inflation no matter how high it gets because the U.S. government couldn't pay the interest on the bonds. And by the way, neither could a lot of corporations or American citizens, because they also have a lot of debt and they can't service it. Or look at all these junk bonds or companies that, you know, they would all go bankrupt if the Fed had to jack up rates to fight inflation. But if the Fed actually admitted that, well, then, you know, the dollar would crash. Gold would go through the roof. So Powell has to try to lie and pretend that he's going to make these decisions without thinking about the impact it has on the U.S. government. But one way you know that that is a lie is the fact that Powell contradicted himself in his own Q&A later on when discussing the balance sheet. And when he was talking about the balance sheet, he was very uh, quick to make sure that he said that the Fed was not even thinking about shrinking the balance sheet. He said, let me be clear. We're not even thinking about shrinking this balance sheet, right? So he said, look, we're, you know, it's not going to shrink. Don't worry about it. Not only isn't going to shrink, we're not even thinking about shrinking it, right? So forget about that. Don't worry about that. But then he said, with respect to the balance sheet, he said that the balance sheet is going to be no larger than what it has to be in order for the Federal Reserve to satisfy the demand for our liabilities, right? To satisfy the demand for our liabilities. Now, what are the Fed's liabilities? US dollars, right? Those are liabilities. If you look at a dollar, a bill, right? It's a Federal Reserve note, right? It's not actually a dollar, it's a note, right? It used to be payable in dollars, which were gold or silver, now it's not payable in anything, but it's still a note, except it used to be a note that promised to pay something, and now it's a note that promises to pay nothing, but because it's a note, it's still considered a liability, even though the Fed is not actually liable to give you anything if you have one of their notes. You see, when you had an old Federal Reserve note, it was actually an obligation of the Federal Reserve to give you gold. If you took a Federal Reserve note to the Fed, they would give you gold in exchange for it. They were obligated to do that. Now in 1971, they were no longer uh, doing that, although actually earlier than that because of um, Roosevelt, but foreigners up until 1971, foreigners could take Federal Reserve notes to the Federal Reserve and and get gold. Americans could do that prior to, I think, 1933. But even though Americans couldn't exchange their Federal Reserve notes for gold, the notes themselves were still backed by gold. But now you get nothing for your Federal Reserve notes. They're not required to give you anything, but they still record those notes on their balance sheet as a liability. So, When Powell says, well, the balance sheet will be no larger than what is required to satisfy the demand for our liabilities, he means that if there is demand for U.S. dollars, the Fed is going to create enough dollars to satisfy that demand. And where is the demand for U.S. dollars going to come from? From the U.S. government. The U.S. government is going to be demanding dollars to spend because it's not going to be collecting enough dollars in taxes to fund all the spending, not only all the spending that it's already doing, but all the spending that it intends to do, right? So the US Treasury is gonna be demanding a lot of the Fed's liabilities, which are dollars. So the deficits are gonna be huge. And what Powell was saying is, well, we're just gonna make sure that our balance sheet is big enough to satisfy whatever demand there is for our liabilities. So he's basically giving the US government a blank check to say, "Look, borrow whatever you want, spend whatever you want because the balance sheet is going to accommodate you. We are going to print as much money as we have to so that we can satisfy all of your demands for dollars." Now, you would not make a statement like that if you are not considering the ability of the government to uh, service its debts when you are conducting your policy. If you're saying we're just going to give the U.S. government all the dollars it wants, because if inflation is really higher than the Fed wants, and now the Fed needs to shrink its balance sheet or raise interest rates to fight inflation, it will not be supplying the government with all the money it wants. Right? It will be denying the government access to the Fed's liabilities. So, but it's not going to do that. You can't, on the one hand, say that you're going to print all the dollars that the U.S. government wants to spend and then say you're not considering the impact of your interest rate movements on the federal budget. Of course they are, because he just basically said we're going to be a blank check for the federal government. And in fact, when talking about the budget and the debt, Powell did say that the debt was unsustainable. He admits that it's unsustainable. Now, he said it's sustainable now because interest rates are so low but he knows in the long run it's unsustainable because A, interest rates can't stay this low forever but B, even if they stay this low at some point the debt is so high that even with a really low rate of interest it's unsustainable but again at some point creditors balk they realize that the debt is unpayable they should have already realized that so we're literally living on borrowed time but even after Powell went out of his way to remind people during the Q&A that we're on an unsustainable trajectory. He specifically said, but this is not the time to do anything about it. He says that you know now we have to ignore the deficit. Even though it's already too big and unsustainable and potentially a huge problem, the government should not worry about it at all and just run it up even more. Keep on running big deficits, keep on spending, don't worry. Now, he would not say that if he was not going to consider the effects of raising interest rates on the federal budget, because if he's now encouraging the government to borrow recklessly and do nothing about a problem that he himself has acknowledged is unsustainable, why is he going to bring that problem to a crisis by raising interest rates because here he is telling everybody hey don't worry about the deficit keep on borrowing and now is he going to pull the rug out from under the government by jacking up interest rates all of a sudden let's say inflation explodes this year and it goes up to five six seven percent whatever even the way the cpi measures it is the fed going to jack up interest rates no <laughs> i mean what powell should be saying if he really was going to not take into consideration the impact that higher rates would have on the federal budget. What Powell should be telling Congress now is cut spending. I mean you better you better, you know, be careful here because inflation might pick up and interest rates may spike. I may be forced to really raise interest rates. And that's gonna bring this whole problem uh you know to a boiling point here because the only reason that the debt is sustainable is because rates are so low. But if I'm forced to raise rates to contain inflation, then there's a crisis. So what you should do now, Congress and President Biden, is start bringing down the deficit now. Start cutting government spending so that you're not as vulnerable to a rate shock. Right? He would not be saying, ignore the deficits, keep on making them bigger and setting us up for a crisis when he jacks up interest rates. So basically what you should come away with understanding, this is not what Powell wanted to admit because he's afraid to admit it, but you can obviously put the pieces together based on what he's saying. He is going to consider, that is the primary consideration. That is the reason rates are not going up because Powell knows that the government can't afford the higher rates. And he is purposely encouraging the government to dig itself into an even deeper hole, to borrow even more money and to make an unsustainable problem less sustainable and even bigger because he knows he's got the government's back. He knows that the Fed is gonna keep interest rates as low as they can, as long as they can in order to enable this to continue and inflation be damned. And that is one of the other reasons why the Fed has to continue to deny that there's an inflation problem, even though it's obvious to everybody else because they know there's nothing they could do about it despite the fact that they wanna pretend that there is. Ladder life insurance makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. Just log on with your phone or laptop. You can apply within minutes and find out instantly if you're approved. After that, you can decide whether to move forward. The plans are offered at a personalized rate that can flex as your needs change. The prices are affordable. There's no hidden fees and you can cancel at any time. Since life insurance gets more expensive as you age, now's the time to cross this off your list. You know, from my experience, a lot of young people make the mistake of buying whole life insurance instead of term. And they normally decide to do that because some salesman talks them into it. But the main selling point, I think, of whole life is that if you don't die, then you still have some cash value left in your policy. But you're not buying life insurance in case you don't die. You're buying life insurance in case you do die. And if you do die, you want the biggest possible death benefit for your loved ones and you want the lowest cost now because that means you can afford a bigger death benefit if you have a lower cost In premium, And that's what you get with term life insurance. And in addition, if there's a lot of inflation, which is what I expect, well, the value of that cash value is going to get destroyed by inflation along with the death benefit. The beauty of term is if inflation really increases the cost of living and you determine that now you need a larger death benefit, you can always up the size of the debt benefit and start increasing your premiums along with a higher rate of inflation. In addition to that, you can take the money that you save by not buying a whole life policy, but buying a term policy instead. In addition to getting a larger death benefit, you can use that extra money to make investments and have an investment account in case you live and don't invest inside an insurance policy. Keep your investments and your insurance separate. And you do that by buying term life insurance rather than whole life. And then building an investment portfolio that will be a real hedge against inflation rather than a a dollar cash value that will be destroyed by inflation. So you can lock in the best rate today and get your family covered with ladder right now. Go to ladderlife.com slash gold. That's ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking again about the minimum wage law uh, $15 minimum wage, you know, one of the biggest losers in a national $15 minimum wage would be Puerto Rico, where I live now. I mean, once upon a time, the U.S. federal minimum wage didn't apply to Puerto Rico. It didn't apply to any of the uh, U.S. territories. And, and that changed under, under Clinton and it was a big disaster. I mean, it was a problem for Puerto Rico, but it was a much bigger problem for American Samoa. I've talked about that extensively on this podcast. I mean, we decimated American Samoa. We sent them into a depression with, I don't know, 40% unemployment, uh, double-digit inflation. We really killed them with a seven twenty five minimum wage. So $15 an hour would be an even bigger disaster. But I want to focus a little bit on Puerto Rico because just recently, the other day, the newly elected governor of Puerto Rico, who is, you know, supposedly, you know, more of a Republican than a Democrat, even though there's no real Republicans in Puerto Rico, they're just degrees of Democrats, right? But he came out and he's supporting now a $15 minimum wage locally here in Puerto Rico, meaning that even if Puerto Rico dodges the bullet of having a federal minimum wage of $15 an hour. They want to inflict the wound on themselves by raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which would be a complete disaster uh, for Puerto Rico. I mean, first of all, the $725 minimum wage is already doing a lot of damage. Because remember, the average income in Puerto Rico is about half the poorest U.S. state. So a $725 minimum wage is already something like $15 or $20 in comparison. In fact, I've, I've seen studies that compare a $15 minimum wage in, in Puerto Rico and it's basically like I think a $60 or a $70 minimum wage in Washington, D.C. to give you an idea of the relative difference in the medium wages. So the number of Puerto Ricans who would be affected And priced out of the labor market by a $15 minimum wage is far greater than the percentage of workers who would be priced out of the labor market in the United States and in the various states. I mean, certainly... There are some states where the incomes are a lot higher and they won't be as negatively impacted by the $15 an hour as the poorer states. But Puerto Rico is way poorer than the poorest U.S. state. And so it will be the most heavily impacted. In fact, if you look at the labor force participation rate in Puerto Rico right now, it's barely over 40 percent. It's like 41, 42 percent. I mean, that is ridiculously low. I mean, it's low on the mainland. It's just a little over 60% participation. But the fact that it's barely over 40%, so you have a tremendous number of Puerto Ricans who do not work, and a lot of them are on welfare and are on food stamps. And if the minimum wage is raised to $15 an hour here, now, of course, at least they're saying they want to phase it in over time. So it's possible that inflation could be so high during the phase-in period that that will mitigate the damage of the minimum wage, right? Uh, But let's assume that there was no massive inflation. Maybe these guys are not smart enough to understand how much inflation there's going to be. And let's say that this minimum wage actually did phase in to $15 an hour. The labor force participation rate might go down from 40% to 30% because, Lots more Puerto Ricans would be permanently priced out of the labor market, right? A lot of small businesses would just close down completely, number one. Uh, And then a lot of others would just do what they could to automate, right? Try to make do with fewer employees, right? And and so there would be a tremendous loss of employment on the island. Now, I started to think, well, you know, this has got to be obvious, right? Why would the governor? want this? I mean, it's clear. I mean, how much damage has already been done in the territories to the federal minimum wage being applied to Puerto Rico in the first place? Why do this additional damage? I mean, even if the $15 an hour minimum wage was passed, Puerto Rico should try to get a waiver from it. So should all the territories, right? Uh, And say, you know, we don't want it to apply here. So I'm thinking, why would he be doing this? And then I realized again that The governor is in the party, leads the party that is in support of statehood. And one of the biggest arguments for statehood, in fact, probably the biggest argument for statehood, is that if Puerto Rico were a state, the people on welfare would get more benefits. That people on welfare in Puerto Rico are not getting as much money in welfare and food stamps as people who are on welfare in the other states, which know, if you adjust it for the relative income, that may not be true. But certainly, if the cost of living or the average income is lower in Puerto Rico, then maybe the welfare benefits would also be lower. But that is a big point where a lot of people are voting for statehood because they're being told you will get more welfare if we're a state. Now, to the extent that the minimum wage law destroys a lot of other jobs in Puerto Rico, and now you have an even bigger population that's on welfare, well, now you have even more Puerto Ricans who want statehood, because right now it's pretty evenly split, right? The last vote, I think, was 52 to 48. It was non-binding. I mean, maybe if we had to have a binding vote, maybe uh, statehood wouldn't pass. So maybe one way to get more votes for statehood is to put more people on welfare and then those people on welfare are more likely to vote for a bigger welfare check because it's the people who are working right who don't want to be a state I mean especially the higher income workers I mean if you're working and you're you know making maybe uh, you know twenty thousand a year thirty thousand a year and you're married I mean you know you're probably not making enough money to pay the federal income tax but if you're making 50, 60, 80, a hundred thousand dollars a year, you would be paying the federal income tax if Puerto Rico was a state. You're not paying the federal income tax now. You're paying a very high Puerto Rican income tax, but you're paying no federal income tax. Uh, But if you also had to pay a federal income tax, that would be a disaster. So the people who are actually working, they don't want to be a state. It's the people who are on welfare that want to be a state. So the more people we can put out of work and put on welfare, well, we got more people to support statehood and of course it's the small business owners right They are the ones that are would be in the highest uh, federal tax bracket. the employers uh, who are you know making the economy go, right those are the ones that would be most impacted by the requirement to pay federal income taxes. After all it's hard enough to run a business in Puerto Rico without having to pay federal income taxes. Imagine adding that other burden uh, on top of all the other ones that you're already shouldering by uh, being uh, an entrepreneur here. So my hope is that some cooler heads prevail and there could be some strong argument uh, in the Puerto Rican legislature against increases in the minimum wage. I'd be happy to do it myself, you know, um, but I, I sometimes I don't think publicly they want to see that people who are here. For Act 2022, I mean, they, they would try to spin it like, oh, rich American doesn't want people to earn $15 an hour, right? They would try to make it like I'm a bad guy, uh, that you know, I'm rich and I'm, I'm against poor people, even though I know that this is going to hurt poor people by pricing them out of their labor market and making them poorer. You know, that that's not the way the media always spins it. So if I were to even publicly get involved, that might actually backfire. So we need some local Puerto Ricans who understand economics and who care about Puerto Rico, the way I care about Puerto Rico, to do something to put a stop to this effort to raise the minimum wage. And hopefully, if they raise the minimum wage on a federal level to $15 an hour, hopefully, there can be an exemption included in that for Puerto Rico and the other territories that says that the minimum wage doesn't go to 15 that it stays where it is. Or if it goes up, it goes up to some lower level, but not to 15 And while I'm on the subject of the minimum wage, I wanna talk a little bit about who does benefit from the minimum wage because I talk a lot about the people who suffer, right? The people who are rendered permanently unemployed uh, and 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 those are the obvious losers, right? Who are people who are put out of work. So not only do they not have a job, but they don't have the ability to learn on the job. They don't have the ability to improve their skills so that one day they can earn a lot more than a minimum wage. They never get their foot on the bottom rung of the job ladder. And if you're not on the ladder, you can't climb to the top. You know, Think about all those stories uh, about the American dream where somebody got a job in a mail room and worked their way up to the CEO of the company. I mean, that's happened. I mean, there's probably not mail rooms anymore, but once upon a time we had mail rooms and I'm sure if there was a minimum wage, maybe they wouldn't have had a mail room. Maybe people would have just picked up their own mail or they would have found another way of doing it and so that guy never would have got his first job, and then he never would have been able to work his way all the way up to the top to run the company. And so you don't want to shut off uh, these avenues uh, where people have an on-ramp to get into a business, and and then they they can improve from there. So those are the obvious losers. But who are the winners? Because obviously, some people do benefit from a a, a minimum wage. And let's let's talk about the people. Who, who do benefit. I mean, first of all, in general, the most obvious beneficiaries of a higher minimum wage are highly skilled workers. I mean, that's clear. I mean, I talk about it all the time because you always have competition between skilled workers and unskilled workers, right? Because skilled workers are more efficient and they can charge more. Unskilled workers maybe do the job slower so they can't charge as much. So you always have the opportunity If you have a job that needs to be done, you can hire one high-skilled person or you can hire maybe two or three less skilled people to do the work. Let's say the skilled guy wants $20 an hour and the minimum wage is, let's say it's $5 an hour. Well, if I can hire three unskilled workers and pay them each $5 an hour, that's $15 an hour. Let's say these three people combined can do the same work that a skilled worker can do who wants to charge me $20 an hour. Well, I don't have to hire the skilled worker. I'll hire three unskilled workers and I'll save $5 an hour. Now the skilled worker could decide to drop his wage and work for $14 an hour instead of $20 an hour. And now I would hire that guy over those three minimum wage guys. But what if the skilled worker has a buddy in government and he can convince the government that nobody should work for $5 an hour, that $5 an hour is too low, the minimum wage should be $7 an hour. And let's say the politicians agree with him and you know they raise the minimum wage to $7 an hour. All right, well, now if I hire these three unskilled workers and I have to pay them $7 an hour... That's $21 an hour. Well, now that's a dollar more than the $20 an hour that I would pay the skilled worker. So now, because of the minimum wage, I fire those three unskilled workers and I pay the skilled worker $20 an hour. So now instead of having to take a pay cut, he gets Congress to eliminate the jobs of his competition, and now he could charge more. You know, And that's one of the reasons that the labor unions, which generally represent more skilled workers or historically had, had been big proponents of the minimum wage because it takes away a lot of their competition that they might otherwise have with um, lower skilled workers. And in fact, if you go back and look at the origins of the minimum wage, the first minimum wage laws in the United States, they were meant to discourage employers from hiring the Chinese or from hiring African-Americans. I mean, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to remove the cost to discriminate because there may have been some employers back then that were hiring the Chinese or African-Americans because they were willing to work cheaper than what the white guys were, were working for. And they didn't like that. And so what they did is they got minimum wages passed. They said, hey, you got to pay the Chinese, you got to pay the blacks the same as what you pay the whites. Well, if you're a bigot, right, and now you got to pay you know, everybody the same, well, you might as well just hire the white people, right? You were, Even though you were a bigot, if you were saving money hiring the Chinese, you hired them anyway because, you know, it was cheaper. You cared more about the bottom line than your prejudices. But once the, the white workers were able to, take away the ability of the Chinese to work for less if people had to pay the Chinese the same amount of money that they were going to pay the white guy. All right, well, then it cost me nothing to discriminate, so I'll hire the white guy. So the whites were able to benefit at the expense of, you know, minorities. But in particular, let's think about this from the perspective of a small business person, right? I'm a small business person, and now the minimum wage is jacked up to $15 an hour, right? How is that going to impact my decision on on who I hire, right? Well, obviously, some people are going to get more money than they would get in a free market, right? Because you're going to have to hire some people. You can't automate everything. You can't outsource everything. So some people are going to get hired and they are going to get paid more money than they would get absent the minimum wage, right? So maybe if there was no minimum wage, a certain job uh, may command $8 an hour, but because the minimum wage is $15 an hour, I'm going to pay somebody $15 an hour to really do what in the free market I would be able to buy for eight, right? So I'm going to overpay for labor. Now, what's going to happen in that situation, right? Well, you're going to have a lot of people who want those jobs, right? because there's are going to be huge demand for those $15 an hour jobs, not a lot of supply because, you know, people are going to try to economize on the number of workers they overpay. So you're going to have this huge, you know, army of unemployed people trying to apply for these $15 an hour jobs, right? Everybody wants to get overpaid, but not that many employers actually want to overpay. So you're going to overpay as few people as possible. But all these people who maybe are only worth $8 an hour, sure right? They're going to they're gonna want $15 an hour. There are people who are unemployed who don't even want to work at seven, but they're going to want to work, right? What if you raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour? Just about everybody who's currently retired would decide they want to work. But how many employers would be willing to pay, you know, somebody $100 an hour to scoop ice cream? You know, not that many, right? Uh, but you're gonna have a lot of people that want jobs and not a lot of jobs available. So let's say I am a small business owner, right? I, I own an ice cream parlor, And I got to hire somebody to scoop that ice cream. Well, I got to pay him $15 an hour because that's the law. And now I've got hundreds of applications for this ice cream scooper job, right? A lot more applications than I would get if I was paying a free market wage, because now a lot of people who are probably better qualified, right, who could probably do other things other than scoop ice cream since they can get $15 for scooping ice cream. Well, they're going to apply for the job, right? If I was only paying $5 $5 an hour uh, and and those higher quality people, they wouldn't apply, right? But now they're going to apply. So I'm going to have all these resumes coming and all these people want uh, to get paid. So now what am I going to do? How do I choose who I'm going to hire? Because it really doesn't matter, right? Well, one thing I can do is I can hire people that have more education. I could just hire college grads or hell, maybe I could just look for people that have a master's degree. I mean, why not? I mean, if there was no minimum wage law, I would just hire a high school dropout, right? Anybody can scoop ice cream, but if if I have to pay a high school dropout the same amount of money as a guy with a master's degree, well, why not hire the guy with the master's degree, right? So I can hire the guy that's better educated. I can also hire the guy that has more work experience. I mean, why hire a guy who's trying to get his first job? Maybe I can hire a guy with 10 or 15 years work experience, right? Obviously, a guy like that, wouldn't apply for an ice cream scooping job if there was no minimum wage. But if I have to pay him $15 an hour, maybe I'll get some of those guys to apply. So that's who I'm going to hire, right? I'm not going to hire the young kid who's just trying to get his first job. Why? I can hire somebody with a lot more experience. I might as well do it. Now, another thing that happens is people start hiring their family members. I'm going to hire my kid. I'll hire my son. I'll hire my daughter. If I'm going to overpay somebody, if I'm going to pay somebody $15 an hour to scoop ice cream, I might as well pay my son the $15 an hour, right? Or maybe my nephew or my niece, right? So uh, you have to have a connection or I'll, I'll, maybe my 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 neighbor's uh, son needs a job or somebody. So all of a sudden now, the people that are more likely to get a job are the people that have connections, right? Well who's more likely to have connections? Higher income people, you know, people who either own the business themselves or are friendly with the business owner. So again, this tends to probably favor white people over other minorities, right, that maybe are less represented among entrepreneurs. The same thing with education. If I'm gonna hire more people with master's degrees and not high school dropouts, again, this type of discrimination is going to more heavily impact minorities, African-Americans, right? The very people that all the Democrats claim they want to help by increasing the minimum wage, you're actually disproportionately affecting those individuals. I mean, that's one of the main reasons that the unemployment rate is so high among African-Americans before the minimum wage, it was actually lower. The unemployment rate for black Americans was lower than the unemployment rate for white Americans, even for teenagers. But that's not the case now. The minimum wage helped destroy that. In fact, that could be still today a, another impact because let's say you are a small business owner and you are a racist or a bigot or a homophobe or, or sexist, whatever, right? Let's just say that's who you are. But without a minimum wage, none of that would impact your hiring decisions. Uh, but with a minimum wage um, and you've got so many applications for these jobs, um, and, you know, you might as well just uh, hire the the straight white guy that doesn't have any uh, disabilities and, you know, whatever, you know, because you've got all these applicants and you got to pay everybody the same price. So there's no cost to discriminate. It's not like, oh, here's a I can hire this guy uh, and, you know, he's African-American, but I can hire him for a lot less money than this white guy, so I'm gonna hire the African American. You gotta pay everybody exactly the same because the minimum wage is 15. So now it, it's free to discriminate. So you're even gonna have more people discriminating, even though I don't think that's as big a factor as some of these other ones, because I don't think there's as many people today who are you know, bigots to the degree that they were you know, back when the minimum wage was first started and it had a, a, a bigger impact. But all these other areas like connections and work experience and education, all of this is definitely going to disproportionately impact minorities and further divide uh, the, the, the the nation or the big difference right between um, minority communities in their in their net worth and in their incomes uh, versus uh, you know white Americans. And this is going to mean that the Democrats are now going to be saying, oh, look, you know, the, we, we need even more welfare programs. We need even more reparations because look at how much bigger this gap between uh, African-Americans and, and whites, and they're going to blame it on systemic racism, but it's not systemic racism. It's the minimum wage and all the other things that the government does that disproportionately impact the people that they claim to care about. And of course, you know, another thing that, small employers might start doing if they have to pay $15 an hour is maybe they'll start hiring better looking people to scoop ice cream. You're going to try to find, you know, a really beautiful woman to scoop the ice cream. I mean, why not? Right. I mean, you start looking for other criteria. I mean, does being good looking make you a better ice cream scooper? No. But, you know, you may be more pleasant to look at. And so, you know, you might as well pay extra. Now, maybe the good looking woman, maybe she could have done something else. Uh, or got paid a little bit more uh, for her looks in another job. I don't, maybe she could have been a hostess or something else. I don't know, someplace else where uh, being good looking is, uh, is more important. But again, if you're hiring people and you're overpaying people, then you have to figure out who you're going to hire. You got hundreds of applications for this one job, right? You know you're overpaying, so you might as well start demanding other criteria uh, that aren't necessarily related for the job, but you might as well get them because you're having to pay up anyway. So, yes, all things being equal, maybe somebody would rather hire a very uh, attractive woman to scoop the ice cream versus uh, an unattractive woman or some guy or something like that. It's just all right, you know. But under normal circumstances in a free market, that would not be a criteria because he may not be willing to pay all the extra money uh, in order to get that individual to take that job. But since he's got to pay up anyway, well, he might as well. So these are all the unintended consequences that nobody realizes uh, when it comes to the minimum wage. Yes, there are going to be some winners. There's going to be a lot of losers, but the winners are going to be disproportionately higher educated, more experienced white guys. Those are the, the winners. The losers will be the less educated, those with less work experience, and disproportionately uh, minority. Those are who are going to be hurt <laughs> by the minimum wage increase. Yet those are the ones that are supposedly leading the charge for an increase in the minimum wage, all based on the fact that it's not fair for people to only earn seven twenty-five an hour, that out of compassion, we need to mandate $15 an hour. Well, if you are compassionate, you would eliminate the minimum wage completely and allow anybody who wants to work the opportunity to get a job instead of pricing more and more Americans out of the market and just, you know, sitting back and pretending uh, that you care so much, kind of resting on your own laurels and your own image of yourself, right, as a caring person. See, I care, right? I'm in favor of this $15 minimum wage because I care so much about, about people who are earning less money. So you signal your virtue by supporting the minimum wage, even though you're actually damaging the people that you're claiming to care about. Meanwhile, the people who actually care about those people in a way that they wanna help them and they actually understand the damage that is done by a higher minimum wage, They're even afraid to articulate it. In fact, I saw somebody interviewed on CNBC from the Chamber of Commerce and asking about the minimum wage and the person was in favor of it, representing small business, just didn't want $15 an hour, wanted it maybe a a lower minimum. I mean, they should be advocating for the abolition of the minimum wage. But they don't have the guts to state their position because they're afraid of being called heartless or mean. And as I said many times on this podcast, once you make the mistake of accepting that a minimum wage is good and you're not willing to be honest and say that it's bad at any price and it should be abolished, if you try to argue that seven twenty-five is a, is good and it should go up. Well, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be 15. You've destroyed your own argument before you even start to make it. But it's all about the pressure to try to pretend and try to signal to everybody how caring you are because everybody is afraid to stand up for doing what's right, right? To try to argue the economic case, forgetting about the moral case of just freedom and allowing you know consenting adults to enter into their own agreements without the government prohibiting it. But to argue the economic realities of the destruction of the minimum wage, particularly when it comes to the poor and minority communities, nobody is willing to make that argument because everybody is afraid that no one is going to see that. No one is going to listen to or follow that. All they're going to see is some mean person who doesn't care.